You are listening to the Apex Hour, hosted by Ryan Paul on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This show allows more personal time with our guests, allowing them to give us their stories and opinions. We will also give you new music to listen to, hoping you enjoy some new sounds and genres. Welcome to this episode of the Apex Hour. Welcome to the Apex Radio Hour. I'm producer Sophia Javage. I'm joined with Apex Director and Professor of History, Ryan Paul, and our special guest, Darren Perry. I'm turning it over to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie. And we're also joined by our other colleague, Evan Miller, who's running the board. Evan, how are you? Doing great today. Good, good. We're excited to have you here uh, in Cedar City for the Apex Radio Hour. What I like to do first is in any of these discussions is really kind of a how we get to now question. So maybe, Darren, if you could just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you've come from, and uh, what brings you here. Yeah, I, I was born in northern Utah up in a community called Syracuse in the heart of in my indigenous land, the northwestern band of the Shoshones, so we're a northern Utah tribe. Uh, grew up in a normal family, went to normal high schools, attended the University of Utah. And uh, for the last few years, I served as chairman of the band, of the Northwestern Band. So I stepped down uh, three years ago to run for Congress, U.S. Congress. And so my journey is is a storyteller. i kind of taken over from where my grandmother left off, making sure that people heard about the Bear River Massacre and heard about Indigenous history from the perspective of Indigenous people. So that has taken me on a journey that I've been on since. So let's let's take a few minutes and, and kind of, for those who haven't heard about the Bear River Massacre uh, or, or who weren't here for the presentation that you gave earlier, uh, why don't you just give us a primer on exactly what the Bear River Massacre was? Uh, the Bear River Massacre uh, happened in 1863 on January 29th. In 1863, federal U.S. troops, the Army from Camp Douglas, Utah, stationed in Salt Lake City, attacked a sleeping Indian village in the early morning hours of the day. At the conclusion of that, after four hours, more than 400 Shoshone men, women, and children were massacred at the hands of civilization. That's kind of what, you know, what took place and the way history has remembered it. But uh, it's much more than that. You think about history and you think about Utah. Utah history didn't start in 1847. Uh, the coming of the Mormon pioneers brought, um, for the Shoshone people and many other tribes of Utah, bought, brought different cultures, and different than anything they'd ever known. And so uh, when Brigham Young and the first pioneers got here, they encountered the first peoples that were here. And they encountered uh, the Shoshone people. Our chief actually went to Salt Lake City and met with Brigham Young on July 31st in 1847, I think to have a conversation about who the stewards of this land was, and it was the tribes. Uh, They didn't meet with Brigham Young that day. They met with a guy named Heber C. Kimball, and Heber C. Kimball told the Shoshone people that you do not own the land. The land belongs to our Heavenly Father, and we calculate to plow and plant it. I can imagine our chief going home, and the chief at the time was Sagwich, and he was my third great-grandfather. But I can imagine him going home wondering, what now? You have two different groups of people living two different lifestyles. Well, as years go by, uh, more and more saints arrived to the valley. Good land was becoming scarce. It was then in 1855 that Brigham Young sent a man named Peter Mon north to colonize the Cache Valley for good. Now, I live in the Cache Valley today. That's what I call home. And But that was home to the Shoshone people. That was home base. We were hunters and gatherers, so we weren't there all the time, but we 
wintered there, and that was always a place that we would come home to. That If you've been there, it's a beautiful valley, uh, streams and lakes and rivers and uh, willows and just a beautiful place that's surrounded in a high mountain valley. So uh, everything the Shoshone needed to survive on was in that valley. Well, the pioneers discovered it in 1855. That first year, there were 20. Uh, in those early days, the saints called Sagwich and his people the friendly ones, which means that they'd had encounters with other groups that were not as friendly. But as more and more saints arrived to that beautiful valley and land was now becoming scarce, those same pioneers started to call our people thieves and beggars, which was probably true from their perspective. The irony, though, in that for me is that the saints themselves had suffered so much hate and injustice on their trek across this country, it's hard for me to believe that they could be found guilty of doing the same thing to my people. It was then that the saints from the Cache Valley and those using the California and Oregon Trails, immigrants from back east, began writing letters to Salt Lake for someone to come take care of the Indian problem. Not sure what they had in mind when they said, come take care of the Indian problem, but a federal judge in Salt Lake issued arrest warrants for the three chiefs. Sagwich, Pocatello, and Bear Hunter. Uh, they were given to the commander at Fort Douglas in Salt Lake City, Colonel Patrick Edward Connor. Connor took those three arrest warrants and said, I will go north, but I am not going to arrest anyone. I'm going to kill every man, woman, and child that I encounter. And that's what he did. On the morning of January 27th, Connor set out for the Cache Valley where I live today, where the Shoshone encampment was. We camped along the Bear River because of the many hot springs that are there. The grasses didn't freeze, so the horses had food all winter long. The Shoshone could get a warm bath if they needed to, to catch up. And, and winter was always the elders' time to tell stories. They, uh, it was a time to relax and heal from a long hunting and gathering lifestyle. And so that's where they found themselves. The Shoshone hunkered down for the winter, just enjoying life and enjoying relationships with family. Connor got to the site on the morning of January 29th. He saw the village and uh, approached the village early in the morning on that morning. And uh, Sagwich knew that they were coming. They were up and ready. And he told his people to be ready if, they're, if they needed a fight. He thought that perhaps he might be able to negotiate a peaceful settlement from the, from the soldiers and because he had done on many occasions before. And, but negotiation wasn't in the mind of Connor that day. They approached the village and began firing their rifles and sidearms at the Shoshone people. But I mean, when you think about it, what are bows and arrows when you compare them to rifles and sidearms of the soldier soldiers? It was then that men, women, and children were being slaughtered like wild rabbits, my grandmother said. Many of the women were running with their children to try to find safety, and some of them jumped into the river. That was, that was probably the last option, but there were springs along the river that where you could actually survive if you jumped in. There was one woman named Danji Chi. She had a brand new baby. She was a brand new mother on that cold January morning, and she jumped into the river, swam under an overhanging bank next to the river near a hot spring where she found safety. When she got there, though, she found herself there with 10 other women who had had the same idea. And then it happened, Danji Chi's baby started to cry. Angie Chi lived to be more than 100 years old, and she would often tell this story of survival to any child that would listen years later. She told of uh, hiding. They could hear the soldiers just above their head. And then she would tell the children that her baby started to cry. And she drowned her own baby 
to make sure that the baby would not give up her location. There are many stories like that of survival and uh, and death. And so uh, our tribe, as a result, you know, we're, we're a small tribe today because of the amount of people that were actually massacred at Bear River. But we, we honor them. Years later, um, our people actually got along pretty well with the saints that had lived in Cache Valley for the most part. Uh, I'm not sure if if the leadership, when they sent for troops to take care of the Indian problem, I don't know if the idea was if they knew that they were going to murder every one of them. Uh, I, I want to cut them some slack and think not. I think the government back then was moving tribes around the country, the Trail of Tears and the, the Navajo. They were all marched to different places and maybe— the good side of me wants to think that the saints thought that they might remove them and take them elsewhere, but that wasn't to be, and that's not what happened. And so, but you know, the, the ironic thing for me is many of the local saints and their leadership uh, began making statements and writing them down in their journals. And uh, many of the statements were to the effect that, you know, the Shoshone people had caused so much trouble that patience had ceased to be a virtue. And the coming of Colonel Connor and his men was actually a blessing in disguise, a blessing from our Heavenly Father to punish them without us having to do it. There were many of the leadership that, church leaders, that were actually uh, mayors of the cities along those those places, but were making statements like that. And so uh, I think they just wanted the Indian problem to go away, and at the end of the day, uh, murder uh, was the best way to do it. Which is interesting because, not interesting, but in some way that, because Connor was not a friend of the Mormon people at all. I mean, he he and Brigham Young was like Clash of the Titans, right? The Fort Douglas per, turns their cannons on the temple, right? He he is the he is the actual antithesis of the vision of what Brigham Young had. But I guess the, the concern was he was more angered or hated the Shoshones more than he did the Mormons? Well, kind of. I, th- I think here's what happened— the, Brigham Young and Patrick Connor hated each other. There was no question about that and what that relationship looked like. Connor actually started the Solid Tribune, what come to be known as the Solid Tribune. He saw the only paper that was in town at that time was the Deseret News. It was pro-LDS, and, and so he started a paper, what he called it, for the Gentiles to get their news. And so he hated everything Brigham Young. But you got to think about Connor in this context. He was an Army guy. I mean, he'd come from Ireland as a teenager, signed up for the Army a year before he actually could, lied about his age, and served in the Army his whole life. That's all he knew. He finds himself in California uh, prior to 1863. The Civil War breaks out, and he wants to go fight in the Civil War to make a name for himself. He gathers up about 250 volunteers from California, and they had out on horseback. They, they actually made them into a company. And so Connor is leading a group of 250 men, California volunteers, to make their way to fight in the Civil War. Uh, halfway across Nevada, they get new orders from the government saying, you know, we really don't need you at this time at the Civil War, but what we need you to do is protect the Overland Mail Route, which cuts through that area, and also go to Salt Lake City, create a camp, and keep an eye on the Mormons. We think the Mormons are going to succeed from the Union. They might join the South. They might join Mexico. We're not quite sure, but we don't trust the Mormons in this. And so Connor was sent there 
And he did exactly that. He set up and aimed his cannons at the temple to intimidate any Mormons and keep them in line. Now, I mean, the Mormons aren't causing trouble. And so he finds himself there for a couple of years with nothing to do, really. He's actually sending his men out on scouting excursions, and he's actually known as the father of mining in Utah because they discovered so many things out of their sheer boredom of, of being there and babysitting the Mormons. So, Well, and he saw, if I'm correct, he saw mining as the— as the antidote to Mormonism, right? It, if, we can, if we can find more people to, to extract these minerals, that'll bring in all these Gentiles, if you will, into Salt Lake and upset the balance of yeah. theocratic government. R- way more Gentiles than Mormons if, if we could bring mining to here. And the railroad too. I mean, he saw it as a way to combat Mormonism in his mind. And so, so that's kind of where Connor ends up being he ends up in Salt Lake. He's bored to tears. He isn't making a name for himself. He isn't killing people, what he thought he was going to do. And now he gets, you know, these letters from saints in Cache Valley. We've got Indian trouble up here. Come take care of the problem. And so for him, it was an easy decision to to go north. And the federal judge actually gave him orders to arrest the three chiefs, and he said he wasn't going to do it. He was going to go, but kill everybody he encountered. And he did. Uh, Everybody that couldn't get away uh, was massacred. And we think, and the reason we think it's more north of 400, um, the day after the massacre, Brigham Young sent three men to find wounded, any survivors, and to count the dead. And all three of those saints that lived in uh, the closest community, which was Franklin, the the lowest count was 461, and they independently counted all of the bodies. But one of the gentlemen put in his journal that it was brutally hard to count the dead because there were eight deep in some places and three to five deep in other places. And then he said this. He said, you could walk on dead bodies for a quarter mile without touching the ground. And so I can't imagine trying to count that many people dead. You're certainly not counting those who had jumped into the river and, and were swept away and died as a result. But the lowest count was 461. So we, we know it was north of 400. We know that. We know how many lodges were there, 70. We know 8 to 10 people usually lived in a lodge. So there's, there's a lot of evidence uh, for the number and not that the number is important, but Connor sent in a, a report to his superiors after the massacre, and he only counted 235. And then in pencil, after the 235 number, he put in parentheses, bucks, which means he only counted the men. I don't think it would have reflected well on him if he would have said, oh, and by the way, we killed 200 women and children too. And so... Uh, History, sometimes I get challenged on the number, and while the number isn't important, uh, the number is important because just of the loss, sheer loss of life. We have a national park at, in Colorado, and, and 200 uh, Arapaho and Cheyenne people lost their life in that one the year later. And so to have something like the Bear River Massacre happen and nobody knows about it and just the vast amount of people who did it. And, you know, I think the only reason I I can explain it, you know, the Civil War is going on. Uh, the news of the day was always what's going on in the Civil War. It wasn't reported on very much at all. And so uh, just not a lot was written about it. Deseret News wasn't going to write about it. I think the the Mormons shared responsibility in it. And so, uh, you know. So, so do we know what percentage of the tribe that would have been? 
that was probably uh, two thirds. Two thirds. Two thirds of the tribe. So the the Bear River Massacre happens in 1863, and then the the tribe under your your third great grandfather Sagwich really has an amazing story of of survival in a way and adapt and adaptability that I want to talk about after our break. Okay. Now we know that you are enamored with the singer Lainey Wilson. And so those of you who's listened to our podcast before know that we always uh, try to get some songs that our guests like. So our first break is a song by Lainey Wilson called Heart Like a Truck. But 
That was Heart Like a Truck by Lainey Wilson. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie. So we left off with this uh, discussion of, of the Bear River Massacre and, and really what happens next is a, a very unusual story for, for, I think, certainly Native Americans in general, but, but absolutely certainly for the, one of the tribes in Utah. Can you, can you talk about what happens, how the tribe yeah, so, moves forward? So you'd think that Sagwich and his people would get out of town and move, and, but they didn't do that. Sagwich went to Logan. He had many friends among the saints, and he had a lot of enemies among the saints, apparently, too. But he had many friends, and he worked for local ranchers for the next few years, uh, scraping together a way of living, and, and a lot of our people did the same in the Brigham City area. Ten years later, Sagwich has a dream. In his dream, three men appeared to him and told him of a god among the Mormon people, and he was told that this is a true god and that they needed to send for missionaries that would teach them what to do. And so uh, a few months later, uh, the, there's a lot to this story, but a few months later, uh, Sagwich sends for a missionary, and that missionary travels north, finds the encampment of all of the Shoshone people along the Bear River. It's May, so they weren't in their wintering campgrounds, but it, it's still spring. And uh, this missionary, uh, after they shared a meal, according to the missionary's journal, uh, he sat down and he taught them the gospel as he knew it. Uh, two hours later, 102 Shoshones were baptized into the LDS church. And so uh, from 1873 on, I think that took our tribe in a different direction as far as other tribes go. The government uh, tried to move us after that point to a reservation in at Fort Hall in Pocatello, Idaho, and to share that with other Shoshone groups and the Bannock Shoshone. And uh, Brigham Young said, no, you're Mormons now. We're going to create a church farm for you, and we're going to teach you to farm, to ranch. We're going to assimilate you into our culture. And so from 1873 on, our tribe was pretty much taken under the wing of the LES Church and taught to raise crops. Uh, they built a church and a school, social hall, called four missionary families that uh, lived among the people. And I was on a thousand-acre ranch and taught our people how to do it. The Shoshone meetings, church meetings, were all done in Shoshone language, which made the missionaries learn the language pretty quick if they wanted to know what was going on. Everything except the sacrament prayer, they made them do that in English. But from 1873 on, uh, our tribe has been assimilated into the LDS church. And so, I mean, if you think back about it, I'm a sixth-generation Shoshone Latter-day Saint. And so, I mean— you know, I, I think about that all the time, and I think about Shoshone culture. I think about ceremony, like the ghost dance and the sun dance and other sweat lodges and things. And I still go to a sun dance. I still participate in sweat lodges. And I try to honor our people and their culture the way they did it back in the day. And so, but, I mean, you know, being a sixth-generation Latter-day Saint, too— you have different thoughts and beliefs and feelings. And so, uh, you know, that's not lost on me that we've completely changed. I think as a result, our tribe is really educated. We value the educational experience. We don't sit around and wait for a government handout. We've been taught to go to work and, and fend for ourselves. And so I think in a lot of respects, our journey has been a little different. But uh, I can't, you know, apologize for it or just cheer it on. It, it is what it is. It, that's where we ended up. So I, 
I know you've been asked this question before, but it, given the complex and nuanced history of your people with the LDS church, why do you stay? Uh-huh. It seems like you have every reason to say, you know, nuts to you. Why don't you do that? Yeah. I, in fact, I attended a conference in Salt Lake City called Sunstone. They have it every year. I call it the conference of Mormons and non-Mormons, but they talk about things that the church doesn't want to talk about ever. And so I was asked to participate in a panel discussion where we all shared why we stay. And it was amazing uh, to hear other people talk about why they stay. And uh, I, I think for me, it comes down to this. And, and I have a really good perspective on it. I mean, I really struggle with the culture of the church. Uh, some of the things that isn't doctrinally, but culturally that we do in the church uh, makes me nuts and crazy. And uh, it would certainly be maybe a reason to leave. But I've always just looked at it this way. I look at what is the gospel of Christ and what he taught, uh, the commandments and all those things and how we treat people, regardless of what they look like, who they love. We're commanded to love them. I mean, that resonates with me and it's powerful for me. What I don't have a testimony in sometimes is men. I think men screw it up all the time. And if and if my testimony of the church was based upon men and their decisions that they make, I'd have been gone a long time ago. But for me, it's easy to separate the pure gospel of Christ and having a testimony of that and feeling like, because that pure gospel of Christ is almost like the native people and the way they lived. We lived in a communal setting. We lived in a way that we took care of each other. It was never individualistic. Uh, one thing the pandemic taught me more than anything is, and it's really divided the country over it, is I heard so many times people say, I'm not getting vaccinated. You're not going to tell me what to do. I have rights. My individual rights are more important than the community. And I was actually on the Doug Wright show on a Sunday morning, and he said, why did 95% of your tribe get vaccinated? And I just said, because my worldview as a tribal member is uh, I have obligations. I have obligations to my community to keep them safe. And if science says that being vaccinated is the best way to do that, that's what I do. I don't, I don't look at the world through that I have rights. I look at it as I have responsibilities and commitments to make sure the community is safe. And whatever decisions I make should be communal. And <laughs> look, I've been in the church long enough to know that if we're going to live in a Zion community, you tell me what that Zion community is. We all are the same. We all give everything to the church, and we're given back just enough to take care of our needs. Well, duh, that's how Native Americans have lived their whole lives. My grandmother would always say, we're as only as strong as the most vulnerable people within our community. And I look at people of color. I look at people, uh, marginalized people in any way. I look at people that love people differently. And we have a long way to go and accepting others for who they are. And I'll tell you, you know, that's my passion as I live out these last few years of my life is making sure we see all of our creator's children the same. My job is to love them and care for them and take care of them, and it's not to judge them, and and heaven help me the day I do. But uh, that's the way Native Americans lived, and that's the way they looked at things. So. With that, let's uh, let's take our, our second break in uh, another Laney Wilson song in, in a very uh, un-LDS sounding name. We're going to listen to Watermelon Moonshine. So Watermelon Moonshine by Laney Wilson. 
Just before the summer disappeared, we went around in them old farm rugs, hanging out on the gate of his truck. We threw a blanket beneath the sunset. Being brave as eighteen gets, we gave each other more than our hearts. With the help of a mason jar, drinking watermelon moonshine. Watermelon Moonshine by Lainey Wilson. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder ninety one point one. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. So we we left off. You had mentioned this story about or this thing, the story that your grandmother had told you, and and I, I would be remiss as a historian not to to spend some time talking about your grandmother, who is probably one of the most amazing and relevant women in the history of Utah, but certainly in the history of your people. So will you spend a few minutes talking about your grandma? Yeah, thank you. I was in Boise all last week to the AASLH conference, history conference. It's a national chartered history uh, group of historians, mostly back East. But they gave for the first time uh, 
for someone who's passed a huge award, and they gave it to my grandmother, Mae Timbimbu Perry. Now, I was lucky enough to go accept it for her. But, I mean, she was, uh, she was born in, you know, she passed when she was about 88. She was uh, just an amazing woman. She was a product of the boarding schools. They forcibly took her from her family and sent her to California to a boarding school. She was beaten or punished for speaking her language or culture. But she returned home, and I think she decided at an early age, the only way I'm going to survive and make a difference for my people is to get educated in their ways. And she continued her education in high school, which was really unheard of for a a young Shoshone girl, especially a girl of color. And then she went to college and got her bachelor's degree in English. And then she began writing down all of the old history and the stories that she'd heard as a child. Stories that I had heard from her, how the coyote stole fire, how the bald eagle became bald, uh, stories that teach values and how to be good citizens and good uh, participants in a community. And those are the stories that we grew up hearing, not stories of capitalism, not stories of how to make a buck and get rich at the expense of the land, but, but values that teach us how to live among each other in harmony and, and how, to tr- how we treat one another with respect and love. So that's how I grew up, learning from a tribal elder like her. And and she was an amazing woman. She passed when I was 18 years old. I knew her well. Uh, I was the oldest grandchild, and my parents both worked, so I got dropped off at her house. But I learned to brain tan hides. I learned to bead. I learned a lot of the language. Uh, I could speak it fluently when I was a child with her. But I learned so many things from her that uh, that I still think back every day. I'd like to have one more conversation with her. Because when you're a kid, you just don't really realize what you have in front of you with your elders. I coined a phrase years ago, when an old Indian dies, the library burns. And that was true about a group of people who used oral history to perpetuate their uh, their communities and their world. And so that's good and, good and all, but if you miss a generation or two, uh, you've lost the whole history of the people. And so what my grandmother did was really transforming. She wrote everything down. I've got bo- I've got all of her writings in boxes, and and you know she typed it all out on this old typewriter that none of you have ever seen. I know the two people sitting here with me have never seen one. So uh, I can't imagine her doing what I can do today. I can speak into my computer and it'll dictate everything I say and then print it out. I mean, if she would have had stuff like that, who knows what she could have produced over her lifetime. But she was an amazing woman. We have NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Reparation Act. She was part of the commission, uh, put on this commission by the president of the United States to come up with that. So she actually got the, the National Park Service used to call the land where my people were massacred the Battle of Bear River uh, in 1990. She went to Congress more than 10 times and testified and took evidence. And because of her activism, they changed it to the Bear River Massacre. So she did so many things in her lifetime that really changed the trajectory of our tribe that we could never repay. Will you tell the story about the time the president called her? Oh, so I'm a her house. I have three little boys at that time and we're just visiting and she's sitting at the kitchen table with a pile of beads in front of her like she always did. And the phone rings and my grandmother never drove. She never had a license, I don't think. My grandfather drove her around in their old Oldsmobile. But I'm sitting there at the kitchen table and she gets a call and my grandfather hands her the phone and she said, yeah, I I think I could make it down there. She said, Grant, will you take me to Salt Lake real quick? And he said, sure. And so... 
she hangs up and she doesn't say a word to me. And then she says, well, I've got to go. And I said, you're going to Salt Lake? Why are you going to Salt Lake? And she goes, well, that was President Clinton and he's in Salt Lake and he uh, has an extra hour and he wants me to come to Air Force One out on the tarmac and visit with him for the extra hour that he's here. And I looked at her and I thought, oh, my gosh. And I don't care who the president is and whether it's your cup of tea political-wise. But I think it's pretty cool if the president calls you and you drop everything you're doing and go have a visit with him. On Air Force One. On Air Force One. But she had that kind of relationship that I had no idea existed. She'd rubbed elbows with people that I had no idea because she never said anything to anybody about it. She just I don't want to say quietly went about her business because she was a fierce advocate for her people. And she was mad at the church her whole life. She never went to church. I think she came to my missionary farewell when I served in Elias Mission. And I think that's the first time in years that she'd ever been inside of a church. But she felt the church was responsible, and rightfully so. I mean, but uh, she held them responsible her whole life. And so uh, I learned so much from her and her activism and how she got things done in the face of being a woman back in those days, trying to get things done would have been hard then, but especially as a brown woman, uh, the things that she accomplished. And she's finally getting the notoriety now. And and it's just, I'm trying to continue her work and continue advocating for our story. And, And look, our story is our story. And it doesn't mean that ours is any more true than anybody else's. But for me, it's about uh, being able to share our perspective and the Shoshone perspective. When Winston Churchill said that history is only written by the victors, that means we've gotten years, hundreds of years of a perspective from people that won. Native Americans never won. And so finally, uh, people are listening to from a perspective of the people who lost. But what a perspective it is. And there's a lot of lessons of life that we can learn from those people. You know, when I think about your grandma, I think of a story that you've told. And, and it's this, I mean, she, she rubs elbows with, with presidents and with celebrities and with church officials and, and with government officials. But yet she goes out and gives the same reverence she does to every human being to the choke cherries. Yeah. Right. Will you talk about that? Yeah. So I live in Cache Valley today. I live up in Logan. I don't live in Logan. I live 15 miles south of Logan. And that's important. It's a little community called Avon. It's not even a town. It's unincorporated. Uh, all the mountain ranges, I think I have a, a huge mountain quarter mile behind me, a huge mountain in front of me. We're surrounded in this little valley by mountains. and But choke cherries and elderberries and serviceberries grow like crazy down there. And there's a river that runs through it. And so I live in that community and the choke cherries were just on. They just are ripe at the end of summer. And I harvest choke cherries for the syrup and jam and we make it all the time. But I remember getting in her car as a young child and going on the longest ride I thought of my life. And it was to the Cache Valley where I live today from Clearfield, Utah. Actually, it's like 45 minutes, but I thought it was forever. When we got there, she would pull out a woven willow basket out of the trunk and it was stained purple. And I knew then, because I'd been on many of those trips, that we were there to harvest choke cherries, something that our people had done for thousands of years, always in the same place at the same time. And she, after we offered a prayer, we offered three prayers. I didn't, she did. She'd offer a prayer to the Creator, 
She'd offer a prayer to Mother Earth. She'd offer a prayer to the berries themselves. And then she began picking those berries with such care that she wouldn't even harm a leaf on a tree. That's the kind of respect that she showed them. Uh, what she calls our non-human kinfolk. Trees, rocks, animals, plants, water. Those are all non-human kinfolk. Which tells me, kinfolk to me means a deeper relationship. It means we're related. And so when she refers to the environment as our non-human kinfolk, that tells me that that relationship is different. And she wouldn't even harm a leaf on the tree. And she would leave, she'd pick some and leave some. And I finally asked her, why don't you just clean the whole branch off? And she said, I, I want to leave something for those who are going to come after me, for those who could not make it to the mountain today. And I want to leave some for those that will come in the future and for the birds, our bird relatives. And so she just taught me a way of looking at things from a little different perspective than most of us look at things. And I think that one of the the exciting things for me, having gotten to know you over the years, is that you, you have also continued that legacy, not only in in your communicating your culture, but in the idea of indigenous values and and how they incorporate into to modern society. And, and two things specifically that have always stuck with me. One is... Every year on July 24th, you, you do a social media post. And it's very similar every year. It's not always the same. Um, and, and that sticks with me. My wife even says when I mentioned I was talking with you today, and she says, I, I, this is the, my, my favorite social media post every year. So can you talk about that? I mean, July 24th is, for those who don't know, is the day that, the, that we, the, in this state we celebrate the arrival of the Mormons into the Salt Lake Valley. It's a state holiday. It's been a state holiday for a long time. Massive parades and family gatherings and all kinds of things. But, but you have a different take on that. I do, and I don't even call it Pioneer Day. I call it Manifest Destiny Day. And for those of you who don't know that term, that term is, you know, you can do anything in the name of religion and God. God wanted the Mormons to be here in this community, and so whatever happens outside of that is okay, because God wanted it to be okay. If the Shoshones or Utes needed to be exterminated to make sure that the, this group of people can come out here for re their religious reasons— then everything's okay. Well, it's not okay. And so I, I just look at it as, and I, I try to be pretty good about it, but I, I just share a perspective that, you know, it's not okay. And the creator that I worship is not okay with, with that policy. And, and I look at it in a way that uh, tell your story, honor the pioneers. There's nothing wrong with honoring your ancestors that actually did a terrific feat coming across the plains in, in, pulling a handcart or pushing a handcart. Kudos to you and your ancestors, absolutely. But let's not stop there. Let's tell all of the stories. Let's tell the hard stories. Let's not tell just the stories that make us feel good and, and bring us joy and happiness. Because by you telling your story, your pioneer story, you're not telling the stories of genocide. You're not telling the stories of the black slaves that were brought here by the pioneers. There's many untold stories that are not being told. And so for me, it's just about recognizing everybody. Everybody's perspective is important. And you can't just celebrate one at the expense of others. And so I try to highlight a different aspect of that. What happened this year that really surprised me more than anything else is I was contacted by Deseret Book a month prior to and said, we're going to have a 
program, uh, a wonderful concert program at This Is The Place Monument on Saturday the 22nd. Would you come down and give a 10-minute talk? All of our speakers are going to be people of color, and we're going to entitle this The Hard Stories That People Have Never Heard Before. And so I was skeptical a little bit because it's a Deseret book who was owned by the church, but they absolutely knocked it out of the park. The people that they had uh, come and perform, the Bonner family that talked about the black legacy of, of pioneering uh, who joined the church. Um, there was hoop dancers. There were other Native American people there that told stories of hardship and and perseverance and adaption. And, and I was just lucky enough to be part of that program. And it really changed my perspective. Didn't change my perspective on the day because there are still those who, if I go to church on the Sunday closest to Pioneer Day, I almost have to take a Xanax to survive these Pioneer stories I hear from the pulpit. But uh, until we start honoring all of the stories, you know, part of the story and part of the picture is not the whole story. Let's talk about all of it. And in a way that doesn't put any of us on the defense. I mean, when I talk about the massacre and what it did to my people by the pioneers, I, I do it in a way that uh, is not, try to not be too judgmental because at the end of the day, uh, we're all in the same canoe now and it wouldn't be, wouldn't do me any good to shoot a bolt hole in the bottom of it. And so my message is always one of, let's talk about hard history. Let's talk about the past, but let's talk about um, learning from it and what we can do going forward to make this world a better place. That should be the story. Speaking of story, before we go to our final break, can you just share with me my favorite story, my favorite Darren Perry story? You know what I'm going to ask? I do. Uh, will you share that story, please? Yeah. So I, I do a lot of presentations to elementary kids. I did one uh, last year to a bunch of second graders, and I made the huge mistake at the end of telling, asking them if they had any questions. Don't ever ask second graders if they have questions, because a girl in the front row wrinkled up her nose at me, and she asked me how you get to be the chief. Apparently, I didn't look chief enough for her, so I told her this story. I said, when a young Shoshone boy or girl does an act of kindness or service, the chief and the tribe would give that boy or girl one eagle feather. So then I asked the girl, I said, what would happen if that boy or girl kept doing kind things for people? And she said, well, they'd probably get more eagle feathers. And I said, you're right. And I said, well, what if that boy or girl kept doing kind things until they became an adult? What would happen? And she said, well, by then they'd get more eagle feathers. And I said, you're right. And I said, you know, one day... When the chief gets ready to die, and the chief is always the chief until they pass away, the chief will the chief will call everyone together, and he'll say, I'm about to meet my maker. I need to select a new chief. I want all of you to pull out your eagle feathers and show them to me. And it was the person that had the most eagle feathers who would become the new chief. And so I told this little girl, go be a chief today. Go be a leader in your community. If someone doesn't have somebody to play with at recess, go play with them. Sit by somebody at lunch that's sitting by themselves. If you will be kind and if you will serve your, your students and the people you know, you will become a leader in your community. Leadership that's not rooted in power and authority, but in service and kindness and love and wisdom. And I said, that's the kind of leaders this world needs today. And so that's always, I always leave every lecture and every talk I give with that message because the world needs that kind of leader today. Yes. Thank you. Amen, brother. As they say in the business, um, let's uh, go to our, our our final break as we get to the last exciting segment of our podcast. Uh, so this song for uh, in honor of 
Darren Perry from Laney Wilson is called Wait in the Truck by Hardy featuring Laney Wilson. Got turned around to some little town I'd never been to before Working my way through a middle of June Midnight thunderstorm There was something in the headlights That stopped me on a dime Well, she was scared to death So I said, climb in And then she climbed With a tear in her bloodstained shirt She didn't tell the whole truth But she didn't have to I knew what had happened to her I didn't load her down with questions That girl had been through enough I just threw it in drive Looked in those eyes And asked her where he was I don't know if he's an angel Cause angels don't do Helping to find a man behind all the whiskey scars I hid. I never thought my day of justice would come from a judge under a seat. But I knew right then I'd never get hit again when he said to me, Wait in the truck, just wait in the truck. Well, I knocked and knocked and no came so I kicked in his double wide door I let the hammer drop before he got to that 12 he was reaching for I didn't try to hide my pistol I didn't even try to run I just sat on the porch smoking one of his cigarettes and waited for the cops to come I don't know if he's an angel cause angels don't do Helping to find a man behind all the whiskey scars I hid I never thought my day of justice would come from a judge under a seat But I knew right then I'd never get hit again when he said to me Wait in the truck, just wait in the truck worth the price to see a brighter side of the girl I picked up that night and I might be here forever it ain't paradise that's true but it's a whole hell of a lot better than the place I sent him to yeah Just wait in the truck. Have mercy, have mercy, have mercy on me. 
That was Wait in the Truck by Hardy featuring Lainey Wilson. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you. Uh, For those of you who've listened before, know that this is an exciting part, the last little bit of our segment here where we talk about what is bringing us joy. So we always start with our guests. We've added a new uh, function of this. So normally it's what have you watched, read, or listened to. But now we've also added, we've had lots of gamers, video games, board game players. So now we're also going to add played. So Darren Perry, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? (laughs) Great question. So I'm reading now and I'm rereading uh, the Sound County Almanac by an old guy named Aldo Leopold. The funny thing about that is uh, a month ago, I spoke at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and they kept talking about this Aldo Leopold guy in Wisconsin. I'm thinking, who the heck is that? And so finally at a dinner one night, I asked one of the students, grad students there in environmental studies, who's Aldo Leopold? And she started laughing really loud, and I mean hysterically, for five minutes. And then she said, well, the environmental college is named after him. And so I'm going, yeah, so? I mean, I had no idea who this guy was. And then she gave me his book, The Sand County Almanac. And come to find out, he was born in the 1880s and lived to be in the early 1900s. But he wrote this book, and he was like the first environmentalist that looked at land almost like indigenous people look at land. And if you think about it, at the turn of the century, some a white guy that was actually practicing Native American ways of stewarding the environment, that was unheard of. And so as I read his book, and now I'm rereading it, the, the gentleness and, and how he treated the environment was so reminiscent of reading about indigenous people and how they look at the environment that a white guy from, you know, that long ago could have written that. He was way ahead of his time, and, and absolutely, I know why the college is named after him, and he's really known as the father of modern environmentalism. And uh, it was just shocking to me to see somebody uh, that talked indigenously without being indigenous. And it started at the University of you know, Wisconsin. So I love that book. Sand County Almanac. Mm-hmm. Right. Evan Miller, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? I don't know if um, something that's really brought me a lot of joy recently. I don't know if this fits in any category per se, but uh, last night I proposed to my girlfriend, so officially engaged so that brought me a lot of joy <laughs> congratulations uh, thank you for now <laughs> the pictures are beautiful sunset the whole thing thank you anyways so beautiful. i i noticed that sitting next to you here a little glow that is uh <laughs> is shining that normally is not as uh evanness well congratulations we're excited we're excited for you thank you appreciate it uh my good friend sophie javage what are you currently watching reading listening to or playing that is bringing you joy? Okay, so I started this book like years ago, but then school always start and it screws up me reading it because then I'm just too exhausted by the end of the day. And this summer I started reading again, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And 
I love books that change your perspective on things and teach you. I love learning why people act and think the way that they do. And this book fully encompasses that. And I've gained a lot of joy and a lot of knowledge from reading this book. So that is what's currently what that's what I'm currently receiving joy from. Okay, Ryan, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? Before I, I tell you, I did not mean to make fun of your Evanness. I think you're super cool. No, it's okay. I, I mean, I offense. always wonder what my life would be if I had hair like yours. Right. So, well, well done. Uh, I'll tell you what I am doing. I'm actually playing a game that I have enjoyed. That I we we've had in the box for a long time. And uh, my, my great friends, uh, the Koenigs, who teach here at SUU, uh, introduced me to it. They had a copy. And so I had had mine. We opened it up. I've been playing it with my son. It's a game called Ark Nova. And it's, uh, it's a game about uh, pretty realistically building a zoo and conservation and animals and sponsorships. And uh, it's a pretty heavy table game. I mean, it takes up a lot of space on the table. But when you get into it, it's quite uh, fascinating. It's not like you're competing against someone. You're just trying to, to finish your zoo before someone ends the game. And then I discovered this thing called Board Game Arena. Have you ever seen that? You kids should know about that. It's a it's an online thing that you can sign up for, and you can play these games all over the world online. So, like the other day, my son and I played uh, a, a game of Ark Nova online. So you could sign up. We could all play together. Wouldn't that be fun to do? Right? Yeah, it would be. All right. Thank you, uh, everyone. Thank you, Darren, for being here. We're so grateful that you took the time to, uh, to come down and, and share your wisdom with us. We will go out on another song that we have picked especially for you, which is Save Me by Jelly Roll featuring Lainey Wilson. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Apex Radio Hour, and we'll see you next week.
wishing on you And all of my sorrows I just wash them down It's the only peace I've ever found All of this drinking and smoking is hopeless But feel like it's all that I need Something inside of me Shattered my hopes and my 